0: The Doctor's second heart was taken from his body, for his own good, he was told. Removed by his sometime ally, sometime rival, the mysterious time-traveller Sabbath, now as a new danger menaces reality, the Doctor unwittingly finds himself working with Sabbath again. From a seance in Victorian London to a wild pursuit on Dartmoor, the Doctor and his companions work frantically to unravel the mystery of this latest threat to time, before time itself unravels. Welcome back to the Secret Library of St. John the Beheaded for another episode of We're All Stories in the End, where myself and the reading group discuss an Eighth Doctor novel or a virgin new adventure. This month it is an Eighth Doctor novel, it's the rather wonderful Camera Obscura by Lloyd Rose. Very little is known about Lloyd Rose, so I'm not going to bore you with a lot of biography of her. Safe to say that she's an American and she comes from my stamping ground here in Washington, D.C. What do we think of her second novel featuring the eighth Doctor? Let's find out.
1: So, my podcast is called Doctor Who Literature. And the idea is there's already a very good podcast going through the Target novelizations in story order. That's my friend Tony Witt. He has the Doctor Who Target book club podcast he started that about five or six years ago with unearthly child and right now they are i think just at the beginning of season 19 so they do an episode every two weeks or so i started a little over a year ago with the first book in publication order which is doctor who in an exciting adventure with the daleks from the 1960s And I got through the three Frederick Muller books in three weeks. And then I was quickly up in episode four to January 1974 when the target line starts properly with the double release of Spearhead from Space, which was retitled Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion. And Doctor Who and the Silurians retitled Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters. So we are here at the tail end of 2022. I am now through... 54 check that 55 regular episodes of the show we are in between my recordings for the stones of blood and the androids of tara so we are right in the middle of the key to time season so my guests are primarily uh, my podcast friends and i'm glad you fall into that category and i occasionally get lucky with a with a celebrity guest interview so i've had sadie miller philip Hinchcliffe. And this coming week, I have Michael Stevens, who's the editor of the Doctor Who Target audiobook collection, which is a phenomenal bit of audio work. Wow! And it dovetails beautifully with uh, the novelizations because I'm talking about them and he's talking them for a living.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. So um, I suppose following on from that, I'd like to I'd like to hear more about how and when you became a Doctor Who fan and how you got into the Target books in the first place.
1: I got into the books and the TV show right around the same time. So I'm growing up as a kid in suburban New York, and I'm 11 years old in 1984. And two of my school friends in the sixth grade, they're both still good friends today, were both watching Doctor Who on PBS. At that point, it's on every weeknight at 7 p.m., right after Bob Vila's This Old House, which is a very strange lead-in for a wacky British sci-fi program, but that's that's the magic of PBS for you. So they kept telling me, you have to watch this show, you have to watch this show, because they knew that I liked Star Trek. So I tuned in one night, and I caught about 90 seconds of Time Flight Part 1. Oh. And I said, this is... I don't understand this. So I gave it a good 90 seconds, and then I immediately changed the channel and went back to watching You Can't Do That on Television on Nickelodeon, which was the pretty anarchic kids' TV sketch comedy show that I was enamored of at the time. And they said, you're not giving it a fair chance. You've got to try again. So I turned back a week later for *Arc of Infinity Part 2. And for that one, I stuck around long enough to see the cliffhanger where the Doctor is disintegrated and Nissa turns to the camera in tears. And that really got to me. And by the time we reached Enlightenment Part 1 with that cliffhanger, spaceships were in space. I probably have not voluntarily missed an episode since then. And that was, you know, literally 38 years ago. So right around the same time, my friend John was getting into the books and he started bringing the novelizations to school to read on lunch break. So he gave me Legopolis, which I read about half of during lunch hour. And I thought it was the greatest thing that I'd ever read. At that point, my reading habits were pretty much limited to The Hardy Boys, Peanuts Comics Compilation, Choose Your Own Adventures, and Baseball Books. So Christopher H. Bidmead's prose was well, well above the other stuff that I was typically reading. So a week later, he brought in The Invasion of Time, and I read half of that on lunch. And then it came time for me to get the books myself. Now I'm 11 years old and I don't have a salary, and my parents were getting tired of paying a babysitter to watch me and my kid sister after school. So I said, "All right, here's the deal." They said, "We are going to pay you to babysit your little sister. I'm 11, she's five. We will pay you a book a week. That's three dollars a week. They handle the tax. So every two weeks, I was brought to the bookstore and I got two Target novelizations. Now." At this point, the Target books are taking off in the States. So my local Walden Books, which is a now defunct retailer, had two full shelves of Target books on any given week. And the turnover was so high that every two weeks or every week, it was a different set of books. So I would spend a good 30 minutes every couple of weeks in trying to figure out which books am I bringing home. And I would have bought Legopolis first had it been on the shelf that week. But in the event, I didn't see it in the wild for a good half a year. So my first three were The Cybermen, which is the novelization of the Moonbase, and The Invasion of Time, and Destiny of the Daleks. Two weeks later, I got Unearthly Child, very lucky to get the very first story so early on, and The Demons, which set off my lifelong love for all things John Pertwee, and The Visitation. So I had books from all five Doctors at the time within my first month of collecting, The following two weeks, I got the Ark in Space and the Program Guide, which taught me the entire history of the show up through 1980. So I was on my way, and I pretty much had every Target book purchased within the next three years. And then at that point, I had my own job, and I was able to buy them as they came out. So having negotiated my parents for a $3 a week salary, they saved an awful lot of money. (laughs) And I have a book collection that is still with me to this day so everybody wins
0: well that's a that's a great story and um i wish i wish my own target collecting days had been that straightforward and involved less sort of international financial crime and secondhand bookstores (laughs) um so and did you follow on with the, the virgin new adventures and the bbc books as and when they came out or did did you come to them slightly later
1: So, in terms of the new adventures, those coincidentally came out my freshman year of college. And I had, you know, kind of fallen out of Doctor Who at this time after just years and years of the Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy episodes on PBS, which did not speak to me when I was in my mid teens. I tried to go to college and not really disclose that I was a Doctor Who fan, considering it an embarrassing thing that I'd outgrown but first week of college they had an on-campus poster sale so you could deck out your dorm room and in a box of photographs I don't know to this day how it got to Baltimore Maryland in 1991 but there was a glossy photo from Death to the Daleks so it's John Pertwee and John Abeniri and half of a flimsy balsa wood looking Dalek prop so I bought that and I hung it up in my room underneath a much larger poster from Star Trek Specter of the Gun. Turns out there was one guy in my freshman dorm who was also a major Doctor Who fan via PBS. So we found each other out thanks to this photo of John Pertwee. So he's the one who told me that the new adventures were a thing because I had no idea. So when I came home for Thanksgiving break my freshman year, I went to the same Walden books where I got in my first novelization seven years earlier. And there was Timeworm Genesis and Timeworm Exodus, $6 instead of 3 And I'm no longer babysitting my kid's sister, so I bought these out of pocket. Read them on the train back to college on the Sunday, devoured them within a matter of hours. Came back over winter break and I bought Timeworm Apocalypse, which I devoured with much less enthusiasm. Then six months went by before I saw another book in the stores, and that was Witchmark, which I barely got through at all. And if it had just left at that, I might never have bought another new adventure. Then I discovered Arts Doctor Who. Back then, the internet was not given out to every college student. You had to kind of hunt it out, and you had to know somebody who knew somebody who knew how to get on Usenet and discover Arts Doctor Who that way. When Love and War came out in late 1992, it hit Rec Arts Doctor Who like a thermonuclear detonation, and everybody is like, you have to read this book. You have to read this book. So I happened to go home from my kid sister's bat mitzvah now. She's 13 years old, and I found Love and War in the bookstore the night before. So I stayed up very, very late reading Love and War and was bleary-eyed throughout her ceremony and reception. Probably bungled my little bit. (laughs) Um, I had to get up there and recite an Aaliyah. But I really, really got into Love and War. And at that point, I was a regular reader right up until the very end of the EDA line. So between 92 and 2004, I was buying those books whenever and wherever I could. And I have pretty much a complete set of all four of the lines, the NAs, the MAs, the EDAs, and the PDAs. I pretty much stopped reading by the end. So like the last year I was buying and not reading them with a couple of exceptions, but I was a regular purchaser from almost the beginning until almost the end. So I was one of the uh, stalwart customers of Virgin Publishing and BBC Books.
0: So you might not have read all of them, but in terms of having a, a pension fund, you've got those saved for, for your future years.
1: Uh, yes, assuming that there is some eccentric millionaire out there who wants to buy my entire collection for $3 million, reach out to me. We can work out a deal.
0: Elon, if you're listening and you want a full set, um, get in touch. So so dare I ask, is Camera Obscura one of the, the books that you did read at the time?
1: It's funny. I, I imagine that you've heard of Warren Zevon, the American musician.
0: I love Warren Zevon, like you wouldn't believe.
1: So you were watching. I don't know if you had access, if you were in the UK, but he did right after he announced that he had terminal cancer. He went on David Letterman's late night show in the States. This would have been like November 2002. And Letterman mm. gave him the whole hour. And they just, you know, they talked about his cancer diagnosis his pending mortality and he performed three songs at this point the edas were almost impossible to come by in american bookstores the distribution had kind of fallen through so i was ordering from various online retailers well i got camera obscura and the eda before that and the corresponding PDAs. that all came to me the same day that warren Zevon was on letterman so i'm watching him give basically what is his farewell performance it was his very last appearance in public i think and i was reading started to read camera obscure in between the commercial breaks. so you'll never forget the combination of those two things when i reread camera obscure for this show literally after 20 years having not touched it i could still hear warren Zevon in my head performing mutineer
0: so mutineer i'm going to ask you if you can remember the other two tracks he did it I'm was, uh, betting it would have been Werewolves of London and then a song off the
1: last album. He did not do Werewolves of London. It was a okay. song off the last album. And that he, he finished, the closing number was Roland the, Headla- Roland the Headless the Thompson Gunner.
0: Oh, classic, yeah.
1: I cannot remember for the life of me what the other song was, but if you tell me the name of it, I'm going, oh yeah, of course. Um,
0: I'm trying to think, because it was his last album my... I'm not sure if I'm thinking of his last one or his penultimate one that had porcelain monkey on it and my shit's fucked up.
1: No, I don't he was he was working he was working on that final album as he was dying. So yeah. he, it would have it would have been off of off of that album. I could google the answer but that would be cheating. Answers on a postcard cheap. please.
0: It'll come to us. But um my my lifelong it's not even an ambition because it's not something I can do but what I what I'd love more than anything is to hear Guns N' Roses cover um, the to Beach Cafe. Mm. I just think that would sound fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so um, after after that Letterman show finished and you, you read the book, presumably all the way through in one breathless sitting, or possibly not, um, what did you make of it at the time, 20 years ago, live at the scene as you read it live, 20 years ago?
1: I have to credit justin richards and the authors for giving us such deeply interwoven books because at the time serialized storytelling was just becoming a thing the sopranos was only a couple of years old buffy the vampire slayer was probably in season six or season seven by this point and that was heavy, heavily serialized for the edas to lean into that model was pretty bold and pretty adventurous in fact, this is the only this book is the only book that is an official crossover between the Doctor Who universe and the Buffy universe in an entirely off license and unauthorized way. So the serialized storytelling is there, but I can tell you that twenty years ago I had no idea what the serialized story was. I only had the vaguest idea of what a quantum universe was I could not understand what was the deal with Sabbath because he was never the same from book to book. And I couldn't figure out who he was working for or what they wanted. And I made it all the way through sometime never. Never quite clear as to what was happening or why. Although when the Council of Eight showed up, I did twig pretty fast that they were meant to be the Eight Doctors because Number 2 and Number 3 hated each other. And Octan, of course, corresponds to the Eighth Doctor. What is amazing now is it makes so much more sense reading Camera Obscura back 20 years later. It's much more careful to explain to the audience what's going on, and it stops every five pages to explain the plot. So either I was too young or I was too upset about Warren in 2002 to pick up what was happening, but it made a lot more sense to me now. I'm actually curious to go back and read the rest of the books in sequence and see if they make any more sense now than they did in 2002 and three. Uh,
0: because I remember much like you were saying that the the books varied hugely from one book to the next and you never got kind of a continuity with Sabbath Um, and by the time of Sometime Never I think I was about ready to um, and I wasn't even buying them by that point I was getting a few of them out of the library every once in a while because I didn't think they were worth spending money on and Sometime Never I think epitomized that although You know, that was 20 years ago, and if I read it again now, I might feel very differently about it. What I remember reading this one um, at the time was obviously, yes, it was amazing that William the Bloody turns up. It was the second book by Lloyd Rose, who had become my favourite writer, certainly for the eighth Doctor books and possibly of, of the entire wilderness era. But the thing that stayed with me more than anything else is the, um, I'm going to use the word accident, but that thing that happens to the doctor on about, I don't know, page 70 or so. Mm. Visceral. For the listeners, if you're, if you're sitting down comfortably, the doctor gets a huge theatrical sandbag dropped on his uh, chest from a height of about 50 feet, which completely shatters his uh, rib cage.
1: That's a bit much, wasn't it? I, 20 years later, had not recalled that happened at all. All I could remember from the book 20 years on was William the Bloody, Spike, right, and Sabbath giving the Doctor his heart back. That's all that I could remember. So I was reading this almost as if it was brand new. I had forgotten there was a Blair Witch reference, and they treat the Blair Witch as if it was an actual historical event. And in 2002, that was really that really hit my gee heart close to home. And I love that. And I totally forgotten it was there.
0: Yeah. It was quite carefully sewn into uh, the kind of prevailing zeitgeist, I suppose. But I am amazed that you just forgot that thing with the sandbag. Cause that to me, that was the most ex- well, exciting is the wrong word. It was the most memorable thing that had happened to the very long suffering eighth doctor. You know, we're into the final third of these books that have been coming out every month for the last hundred years. And um, suddenly someone's dropping a sandbag on him. And the ribs are coming out through the back of his shirt and scratching the floor. Oh!
1: In my defense, I was reading these books in sequence. And at this point, i had been reading the books for well over a decade. So I'd read every word of Jim Mortimer fiction that the BBC would publish, which was most but not all. Of his words of fiction had to campaign. So I'd already seen horrific violence and brutality in the NAs and the EDAs, and there was a high splatter count. So while I was surprised to find this scene, having no recollection of it, I don't think it was that too far removed from some of the graphic violence in the other books, Jim Mortimer and otherwise.
0: Well, I'll, I'll see your Jim Mortimer, and I'll raise you Kate Allman, who seemed to love you know breaking the doctor's arms shooting him getting him drugged out of his head and then you know the poor doctor in both of those incarnations did seem to go through the ringer quite regularly um i suppose it was just something every writer wanted to do at some point or other
1: kate though was a proponent of hurt slash comfort fiction so you would hurt the character and then you would comfort him, so there was always a lot of emotional security blanketing going on in Kate's books. Something bad would happen, but then the companions come to the rescue. Lloyd Rose, who's a kindred spirit to Kate Orman in many ways, does not give us a lot of comfort in this book, because the doctor's doctor's companions here are Angie and Fitz, and they're kind of on the back foot, they're going through their own traumas, all they can do is stand there and wring their hands. They're not able to give him the same emotional comfort that Kate Orman was able to deliver via the other companions. Mm, that's
0: true. It's also there's also a really good bit where Fitz gets to actually smoke. And I'm coming to these books. I haven't read them for twenty years and, and all the ones I have reread recently, he's thinking about cigarettes or he's thinking about smoking, but he never seems to actually get one. But I'm glad to see that at some point in this book he does at last have a cigarette. Um Everyone, you know, comes out of this book fine in the end. The Doctor just gets better. Because I still I still maintain that Lloyd Rose is one of the best writers. And I think this book kind of didn't age as well for me. Would you say that's fair? Or, or did you find the other way?
1: Even though I'm a guest on your show, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. Because I enjoyed this book much more now than I consciously remember enjoying it in O2. I'll preface by saying I adored City of the Dead, which is Lloyd Rose's debut novel. I will also say that someone who was living in Baltimore for most of the 1990s, when Homicide Life on the Street was filming in Baltimore, and almost everyone in my college class had some experience running into the crew in the wild, Lloyd Rose, one of the few Americans to write for The Line, not counting John Blum. I think they were the only Americans. Um, There may be a couple of others at the very end that I've forgotten. I want to say that Kelly Hale is American. She co wrote a book, but I don't know her personally. I will say that Lloyd Rose had written an episode of Homicide Life on the Streets during its final season, and a very good episode too. And that show was, you know, that was the creme de la creme of television in the 1990s. It was The same people who later gave us The Wire. And homicide has a bigger place in my heart than The Wire does because I was living there as it was happening. And she had come from that background. And here she is writing for Doctor Who uh, as part of a very narrow intersection of a Venn diagram between homicide fans and Doctor Who fans. (laughs) Thread of the needle for me. So because I loved City of the Dead so much, and that takes place in America, Camera Obscura, I don't recall getting into it. As much. The writing this time carried me through. She gets into what it means to live in 1893 for a month or two months. What Angie goes through as an Asian woman living in the Victorian era, having to dress in period costume and smiling rather than speaking, so as not to reveal that she's a person out of time. That really, really hits close to home today, because I think we're much more in tune to institutionalized racism in 2022 than we were in 2002. Lloyd also takes us through what it's like to live there in terms of the socioeconomics and the smells and the sights. Here's a trivia question for you. And I didn't pick up on this at all in 2002, and I think I have the answer now. Where exactly are the doctor and Angie and Fitz living?
0: I was assuming it was somewhere in London, but then that doesn't make sense. So it would have had to have been up north. So somewhere like Liverpool, maybe.
1: I was thinking a very specific address in London because the doctor takes the train to Liverpool. That's where we first see him when he's going to Octave's uh, stage performance. I want to tell you this. I think they're living at 221 B Baker Street because the geography (laughs) of the house and the yeah. geography of the rooms matches, and the owner is away. And when Sabbath breaks in, he makes a postmodern remark about how ironic it is to pick the lock of this particular building. It's got to be 221B Baker Street, the Sherlock Holmes address.
0: That is a lovely thought. And I suppose, given that he met Holmes and Watson in um, all-consuming fire, that, that that would kind of be, be you know internal continuity at work. Um, Yeah, I want I want to go back. I feel like I need to qualify what I what I said, because I do think City of the Dead is probably the best, certainly of the EDAs, um, without a doubt. And I think if she'd written a second book also set in America, that would have been fantastic. But I think maybe because it was England, I was just that little bit less kind of awestruck by it. Um, It's still incredibly well written. But it feels like the the story underneath that writing is a little bit slighter, um, but it's still a masterpiece. So don't be sending people with guns to come and sort me out.
1: I will not drag a. Uh, I will not drop a fifty pound sandbag on your chest. That's. I promise.
0: Good. That's very kind of you. I know a lot of people who wouldn't be that kind. A lot of them in podcasting. Um, So so that's good.
1: (laughs) But she takes advantage of the geography. She sets a large chunk of the book in the Crystal Palace, which is now lost to time. So she really thinks her way through the ramifications of spending all this time living in the past. So I think if she's hamstrung at all, it's by the fact that she's writing a book that has to take place in a very specific spot and she has to use a specific villain, and she has to have specific events. So the Doctor, or Sabbath, has to reject the Doctor's second heart at the end of this book, and she has to kind of invent the plot to fit in that rather implausible event, through no fault of her own. But I'll just say that I didn't like Sabbath. I mean, I think I enjoyed Adventures of Henrietta Street, about which I have a few strong memories When I read Anacrophobia, it was very clear to me who Sabbath was supposed to be, but he's kind of in disguise the whole time. And then everybody on the internet loved History 101. I have not read that since it came out, but it left me very cold, and I remember very little about it. The choice that she makes in this book to have the Doctor and Sabbath team up as reluctant allies and to have Sabbath keep track of the number of times he's saving the Doctor's life, and for the Doctor to draw a map so Sabbath can rescue him when he's buried alive, and for Sabbath to make fun of the Doctor's very poor illustration style, I think Sabbath works better in this book than I recall him working in any of the other books that I read. And he hung around forever, and I can't even remember how he exited the line, but it must have been in Sometime Never years later. I think if I were to go back and reread all the Sabbath books, I would probably be hard pressed to find a book where he works better than he does here.
0: I agree with you completely, although I'm going to I'm going to brush that with the caveat that I don't remember either. Um, I'm assuming we're right. I mean, I can (laughs) remember he either appears for two pages at the end of a book or obviously he's more prevalent in Henrietta Street. But yeah, he's he's always kind of a moustache-twirling villain, uh, generally. Whereas in this, it's actually a kind of similar relationship to Holmes and the Doctor in All Consuming Fire, where they're ostensibly there for the same thing and working together, but there's just nothing but bitchy, arch-barbed commentary between the two, which was really quite lovely. And what, what Lloyd was able to do with Sabbath in this was not just make him into a A full character, but also to make him genuinely entertaining in a way that um, lesser writers possibly did not achieve.
1: He also gives her a companion in this book, and I had no recollection of the companion, the Angel Maker, at all. And it's very clever what she does, having a female character who's accused of a horrific crime, which it turns out she's essentially innocent, It's a really interesting way into the story, and it's a really interesting way into showing us what Sabbath's values are. So I don't recall him being this interesting in any other book. I just recall rolling my eyes whenever he appeared, reading this back now 20 years later. I wouldn't say that I'm a fan. Like, If you read the Wikipedia page for Sabbath, I think I have that right it says he's based on Orson Welles. So that just doesn't work. For me. I cannot picture Orson Welles's voice in my head, reading any of these lines. So that doesn't work mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. but I think he works very well in this book as the doctor's ally slash adversary.
0: Yes. I think it's, it's probably fair to say that as soon as you fall down firmly on the side of being an adversary, your dialogue just becomes very kind of, heightened and increasingly hysterical as the story goes on um whereas by keeping him kind of ambiguous you're able to push and pull at him and you know really tease out some brilliant stuff i thought it was interesting that he had a a companion who was you know ostensibly a a criminal um although ultimately not guilty But it reminded me of the Master at the end of Series 3 of New Who, where he's suddenly got a wife who's his companion. And it it just kind of underlines that a lot of people just do things with Sabbath that they want to do with the Master, but never got the chance to.
1: Also, I would give a shout out to Part 4 of Legopolis, where the Doctor and the Master team up. And for the first half of the story, they're working together and cooperating Every line they say is a barb or freighted with double meaning. And I love Logopolis, having been introduced to it at the very beginning. So any book that harkens back to that specific relationship between Tom Baker and Anthony Ainley, who were a pretty good combination for that one story. I have to say you've hit a winning formula, if that's what you're basing your your characters on. And what's interesting is that – oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: I was going to say there's that sort of tacit illusion in the book to Legopolis, where the, the doctor has a memory that he once worked with someone he didn't trust, but he can't remember who it is because this is during that interminable 50 book run where the doctor has no memory. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. But yeah. Something I loved about city of the dead is that the bad guy in that story is the doctor's ally for almost all of the book. And when I was reading city of the dead, in the wild, whenever that came out, 2001, I think, I had Donald Sutherland in my head as that particular character. And that works much better for me than trying to pretend that Sabbath is Orson Welles. And then when you get to the end of the book and the doctor realizes that this person is is the villain and was saying, I hoped it wouldn't be you. I love that. And that's one of the reasons why I value City of the Dead so highly. This book does almost the same thing with Chiltern, because we first meet Dr. Chiltern at the seance, along with James Marster's character, and he and the Doctor immediately hit it off, and they become allies. And then by the end of the book, there's multiple versions of Chiltern that have been ripped apart through this time machine, which I want to talk about. But what I really want to do is the reason I bring this up is because I want to make a pun that the villain of this book is the timeless Chiltern.
0: (laughs) Uh... No, I like it. What did you, um, I'm just kind of, because when, you know, when you just said about Donald Sutherland in your head, I was thinking early 2000s, I'm looking for a large balding actor to play Sabbath. Who would I go for? And now, if I was making the TV show in 2002, I would have cast James Gandolfini as Sabbath because that would have been Hugely entertaining to watch.
1: You know, I am going to have to now go back and re re read this book with James Gandolfini's or Tony Soprano's Brooklyn accent, and drop a lot more f bombs <laughs> into the text as Tony Soprano did. I just don't think it's going to work.
0: You've got you know you've got Paul McGann being all, oh excuse me, Sabbath. Do you mind if I say something in a very Fay and Arch softly spoken way? And then Sabbath going, "Fuck you and your mother." Yeah, it just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, I'll probably have to edit that.
1: Well, we also have to find a way to work Pauly Walnuts and Christopher into the narrative. Christopher because...
0: would, would definitely have um, worked at the mental hospital, as indeed probably would Paulie Walnuts as a kind of comedy double act of orderlies. It would have had a bit of business, maybe.
1: I was working <laughs> in lower Manhattan at the time that these books came out. And The Sopranos was still occasionally filming in lower Manhattan, especially Mulberry Street, where my girlfriend, now wife, was living at the time. She actually ran into him in a laundromat and got James Gandolfini's autograph. Yeah. And I actually had lunch one table over for Michael Imperioli at a restaurant in Tribeca, probably in 2001, 2002. So I, I was a huge Sopranos guy at the time. So any Doctor Who book that has The Sopranos in it would be A tremendous plus for me.
0: Well, this is the thing. I mean, if if Lloyd can put a Buffy character in it, then there's nothing to stop you writing a Doctor Who book and putting a you know, a peripheral soprano in it. I'd have I'd have Johnny Sack staying in the same hotel that the doctor's staying in, and they can just like walk past each other in the lobby and it can be very understated, but anyway (laughs) Once again I've led us down a bit of a cul-de-sac. Um, so what what did you make of the, this whole the, the, the kind of story with this mirror time machine-y thing that splits people into eight or whatever? Um, we're not told where the machine came from, we're not told uh, anything about it really um, do you think it was, do you think that made for a good enough story or would you have liked
1: more or less information? You can't give more information without making it a sequel to a particular classic series story set in Victorian London featuring a malfunctioning time machine. She doesn't come out and say that this is Magnus Greel's time cabinet. And there was another EDA about a year later called Emotional Chemistry, which is a direct prequel slash sequel to Talons of Wang Chiang. I can't tell you for a fact that's what she thought it was, but when you're talking about a time machine made of mirrors, so it's really only one of two time machines that this could be if you're going to play the classic series continuity game, if it is not Magnus Greel's time cabinet, what is another 19th century time machine with mirrors in the Doctor Who universe? It's the Maxtable slash Waterfield invention from Evil of the Daleks, which was supposedly blown up with the Maxtable house in episode six of that story. But time machine with mirrors, it's probably one of those two. The internet appears to fall on the side of magnus griel i think it could go either way
0: Hmm. i was i mean i kind of assumed it was that but there was nothing in the sort of text really that that alluded to that so i didn't want to just assume that but i think that's very nice and i think therefore dealing with it in this kind of um, I can't remember what it is or where it came from, but I'm going to kind of wrap up this this little thing that's left over from my previous adventure. is very nice and probably happened to the poor amnesiac doctor really quite a lot. Um, it's a problem with reading these stories out of order twenty years later that uh, I'm I'm not picking up on quite as much as I used to with these, but um, yeah. So how does it work for you as a as a sort of cheeky sequel?
1: It's very subtle because you spend most of the book not knowing what the camera obscura is. Then they go to the Crystal Palace and Angie and Fitz go inside of it almost as a diversion unrelated to the plot. Then they realize that this camera obscura is showing things not outside the Crystal Palace and possibly not of this time. And it's not until the very end of the book that the doctor puts everything together. And of course he's buried alive momentarily while he's chasing down Scale, who's the owner. And when Scale is killed by one of Chiltern's evil twins, the doctor is really devastated by this because he did everything he could to save Scale, and Scale stupidly gets him skilled by it. stupidly I'll say that again. <laughs> Scale stupidly gets himself killed by a villain much more sinister. Then, the book turns into a stealth sequel to Hound of the Baskervilles, which I had not yet read in 2002, so all that Dartmoor stuff went over my head. Now, of course, the Doctor is thinking, trying to recall a phrase from the book for most of the Dartmoor sequence, and it happens to be the exact same location where a Sontaran experiment took place, only this is a much better story. And then, at the very end, the Doctor goes back and discovers the time machine, and This is something that's nice. The EDAs weren't doing a lot of this. But the American medium who was given a split personality by the machine is cured by the machine. And I thought that was pretty neat. And then the Doctor, with the power of his eight lives, is able to destroy the time machine at the end and prevent it from doing any more damage to the space-time continuum or the multiverse. I was not crazy about the Chiltern monster. I thought that was kind of A little too grotesque for me. You wouldn't want to watch that on television. You wouldn't want the Chiltern monster to be that gross. But I think the story wraps up pretty neatly, and the time machine is used in a satisfying way. It gives a happy ending to somebody, and then it's destroyed before it can do any more damage.
0: Agent Orange, what did everyone else
2: have to say about this book?
3: I shall play back the recordings from Kevin...
2: Hi everyone, here we are again, back in the world of the Eighth Doctor. And you may recall that when I read Anacrophobia, there were a number of things I found slightly confusing. Why did the Doctor only have one heart? Who was Mistletoe? Okay, yes, i figured that out now. And entering this book, is the same conundrum. What happened in Spain? Why are all the Time Lords gone? But this time, I'm not frustrated by gaps in my knowledge of the backstory. Because when a book's this good... You just jump into the handsome cab and hang on. Sure, it's a victoria setting. We've been here before in towns of Wing Chiang and all-consuming fire, to name but two. But despite their veneer of moralistic values and gleaming crystal palaces, the old Victorians liked a bit of the grotesque. And we get that here with an under-society of madhouses, seances, freaks, dodgy magicians and carnival sideshows. It's a London that oozes atmosphere, full of drugs, dirt, disease, dismemberment and death. Plus a man split into eight parts and a misshapen time twisted monster with a mouth in his eye, a rosebush for a leg and a toaster on his back. Something to give even Morbius a run for his money. Lovely. And given the period, Lloyd Rose obviously can't resist the Conan Doyle homages. I don't blame her. The Doctor's desperate escape across Dartmoor's exhilarating stuff, even if there is a strong whiff of a certain hound on the breeze. And when you have an antagonist as interesting as Sabbath, there's bound to be comparisons. But forget Moriarty, or the Master for that example. Sabbath is Mycroft Holmes, probably the Doctor's intellectual equal, but someone who looks at things from a different, more singular viewpoint. Clearly both see themselves as the protector of time, and as the other as a dangerous meddling fool. Forced to work together, they disapprove of each other's choices, and some of the most enjoyable exchanges are when they argue points of intellectual morality, usually in front of a roaring fire. That, and a great joke with a whoopee cushion. I may not know much about Sabbath's history at this point, but I definitely know I want to read more. In fact, the race to recover a defective time machine with the power to destroy the entire fabric of time and space, what else, is almost secondary to the relationships between the various rich characters. And for once, I'm glad. Doctor's interactions with the exhibition freaks, the weird Chilton family, and even the untrustworthy scale are all brilliantly realised. Equally, the Doctor's emotional journey is there for everyone to experience. We've rarely seen him this vulnerable, this cranky, or this desperate. In between the clever dialogue, and some damn good cliffhangers, there are lovely little touches. Paragraphs that bring a great big grin to my face. The TARDIS entranceway being cloaked in an illusion of darkness that prevents the console room from being seen from outside is a loving nod to the constraints of the classic series. The way the Doctor describes time as a musical score with infinite possible ornamentations is just glorious. And Sabbath listing all of the ways that the Doctor's plucked out of trouble at the last minute. It's true, in his presence the odds do collapse. Oh well let's not forget the fun with the tennis ball at the very end. But as much as this is a novel about the Doctor, it's not about the Doctor being in control. He's swept along from one crisis to the next, often suffering immense gruesome harm in the process. I mean, I totally get the conceit that, while Sabbath has his other heart, the Doctor's effectively immortal, but did he really have to go through quite so much to prove it? At various times he's had his chest crushed, his remaining heart stabbed, his face sliced open, and he's bashed up and down on the floor like a rag doll. Okay, so he's allowed time to recover, but it's still a bit much. All that, and he travels to the land of the dead, or maybe it's hell, to strike a bargain with the Avatar of Death herself. It's a sidestep into unexpected territory for sure but it's so beautifully written that it's forgiven. The section where, in order to continue his descent, the Doctor gradually strips himself of his clothes, his body, his strength, and finally his heart, is just marvellous. Can you tell that I love this book? I hope so. It's one of those books you want to show to people and shout, Here, read this bit. It's brilliant, isn't it? So more from Lloyd Rose, please. More Sabbath. or more H-Doctor novels that are this enjoyable. Curio.
3: Right, camera obscure. Well, let's start by saying what we all know it's Kylie Minogue's favourite Doctor Who book. As evidence, as I'm sure Ian spoke about, that famous photo of a slumbering Minogue on the sofa uh, with a copy of the Telltale book by Lloyd Rose next to her. So who can I agree with Kylie? Astropeth clearly knows her reading material. But to get on to the book itself, you know, this is an interesting one. We're at a point in the range now, where a few years away from the revival, and you can actually hear the clunk of the series moving up a gear. I mean, the setting. Let's begin with Victorian London, beautifully evocative. You know, uh, this is very much for me, uh, and I'm looking at Lloyd Rose's prose. It's born in the aftermath of the Jeremy Brett, Edmund Hardwick. Um, Sherlock Holmes' Granada series of the late 1980s, you know, it's practically dripping an atmosphere, but where this book really succeeds, it eschews the kind of uh, slightly adversarial format that we've seen between The Doctor and Sabbath up to this point, you know, in Henrietta Street. what we're seeing here is the two of them being forced to work together. And that unlikely partnership, that almost sort of unwilling body cop dynamic, is played out against an increasingly evocative set of series of set pieces. Um, and you've got, you know, background environments such as, you know, the drip, sweaty streets of Victorian London. And then we have a wonderfully evocative sequence on Dartmoor with the uh, eponymous chase. But I won't go into that for you, those of you that haven't read the book properly. There's some sterling character development on place for our companions as well. My personal favourite is the growing realisation and horror of Angie as she realises, you know, that the sheer uh, desperation that the Doctor's going to to save the day and indeed the actual physical hurting that he has on his character and his body as the novel wears on. You know, this is a novel that, if you pardon the pun, wears its solo heart on its sleeve. You see what I did there, Ian? See what I did there. But, um, you know, we digress. You know, any, any book that takes the characters to such emotional extremes and then concludes with Angie sat there in jeans watching an episode of Absolutely Fabulous is good in my book, uh, Blumley being a doctor or not. So to kind of sum up, Camera Obscure, Grand Book, uh, personally one of my favourites and it's, I would say, one of the most important novels not written by Lawrence Miles to sum up the character of Sabbath and actually bring them to a new audience. So we kind of understand the stakes that are being played for and the post, the post world that we now find ourselves in with the Doctor as one of the remaining final four. Uh, But that's a tale for another day. Anyway... I'm going back to this horrendous cold snap in the UK. See you guys later.
0: In closing then, I suppose I'd recommend this book to anyone who wants to read more from the amazing writer of City of the Dead. Lloyd Rose is truly one of the Eighth Doctor's greatest writers and this book remains fantastic.